When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I consider the successful administration of the general government as an object of almost infinite consequence to the present and future happiness of the citizens of the United States. I consider the office of secretary for the Department of State as very important on many accounts, and I know of no person who, in my judgment, could better execute the duties of it than yourself. These were some of the words that Washington used in a letter in January 1790 to try to convince Thomas Jefferson to accept the post of Secretary of State, and it is here that we'll begin this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. As always, I'm your host, Jerry Landry. It is finally time in the spring of 1790 for Thomas Jefferson to join the federal government in New York. However, Though Jefferson had been nominated and confirmed as Secretary of State in September of the prior year with no problem, it was not at all certain at the beginning of 1790 that the Virginian would accept it. We'll discuss Jefferson's time in Paris in more detail in later episodes, but suffice it to say that Jefferson greatly enjoyed the experience and had planned to get back to his post in Paris as soon as possible in order to see where the French Revolution led a movement to which he had already contributed by providing guidance with the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen that had been adopted by the French National Assembly in August. Having been through the revolution in North America, Jefferson was intellectually curious about where this revolution on the European continent would lead. However, a return to Paris was not in the cards for Mr. Jefferson. He learned of his appointment upon landing in Norfolk, Virginia in November 1789, and after taking some time to consult with Madison, Jefferson finally announced in February 1790, in a response to an address in his honor by the citizens of Albemarle County, Virginia, that he would, in fact, accept the post of Secretary of State and work to settle some personal matters, including marrying his daughter Martha off, before making his way to New York, making a point of stopping on the way to visit his old diplomatic colleague, Benjamin Franklin, now bedridden in Philadelphia, before reporting to Washington for duty. Indeed, in February 1790, it seemed like the new government was finally getting into a good stride and starting to hum along. The Supreme Court met for the first time and began hearing cases. The Washingtons moved to a new residence in New York City. Everything's finally falling into place. Then, Congress started debating the debt assumption bill. Now, one has to wonder how things might have been different had Jefferson been on hand for the early days of the constitutional government to counter Hamilton's influence, as he would soon do in the cabinet. Jefferson himself might have felt that he would have been able to use their shared Virginian heritage to be the greater influence on Washington. Indeed, the two men had known each other, if not closely, then as acquaintances, for a quarter of a century at this point, and their Virginianness is likely one of the factors that kept their relationship cordial during Jefferson's tenure in the cabinet. However, to assume that circumstances would have been any different had Jefferson been on hand at the beginning is, in my opinion, a fallacy. First, it assumes that Washington was easily influenced. This is a man who, with no legal training whatsoever, had no qualms about deciding to not follow the legal advice of his own attorney general on a matter shortly after Edmund Randolph took up the post. 
Washington would listen to the opinions of others and tried to seek out expert opinions, but his decisions were his own, a fact that he strove to make very clear to all who served under him. Also, it must be remembered that Washington was still Jefferson Sr. by 11 years and had a gravitas that left his younger colleague, who had known him but had not been close to him, in awe. Later in life, Jefferson would write of Washington that, quote, he was incapable of fear, meeting personal dangers with the calmest unconcern. Would Thomas Jefferson, in late 1788 or early 1789, been willing to challenge Washington with the burgeoning small-f federalism that was beginning to sprout? I think it doubtful, considering how long it took Jefferson to make anything resembling overt moves towards countering the capital-F federalists. Thus, Jefferson's arrival in New York on March 21, 1790 had, in my estimation, about as much of an impact on the new government as an arrival in March of the prior year would have had. He would arrive in the city to find the battle lines drawn between the pro-administration forces in Congress in support of Hamilton's proposals on the credit and the anti-administration forces rallying around James Madison's compromise proposal. On a rather symbolic note, Madison's proposal to discriminate between the original and the current holders of public debt had been voted on and defeated on Washington's birthday, February 22nd. That was far from the end of the debate, though. An opposition on the various proposals of the report on the public credit was not unified as different motivators moved congressional members to support or oppose a given part of the plan. Indeed, as noted by Jacob Cook in his article on the Compromise of 1790, the opposing sides in the Assumption debate were for the most part divided by, quote, the extent to which their own states stood to benefit by the measure. Massachusetts and South Carolina, whose large revolutionary debts remained virtually unpaid, strenuously supported Hamilton's proposal, as did Connecticut. Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, and Georgia, much of whose debts already had been paid, just as vigorously opposed Assumption. As the weeks turned into months, with no final decision made, two more events transpired which shook confidence in the new republic. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Benjamin Franklin had been in ill health for some time. He had turned his attention during his final days to a cause that was still on the periphery of American society, but was increasingly growing a stronger voice, the cause of abolitionism. 
We will talk more on this subject in a future episode. But Franklin's endorsement of abolitionism gave it added credence and contributed to its increased discussion and popularity. However, he would not live to see it through, as he passed away in Philadelphia on April 17, 1790. Ironically, it would prove to be the slave-holding James Madison who made the motion in the House on April 22nd, calling for a nationwide month of mourning in Franklin's honor. There was not at this time, and would not be for a bit in American history, the widespread sectional animosity and divide that would play such a large role in the national story. They may not have always understood one another, but folks from different sections of the country didn't necessarily dislike one another because of that, though they may at times band with people from their section to defend common causes or address common concerns. Though Fisher Ames was writing in March 1790 about Southern opposition to the proposals of the Washington administration, neither Northern nor Southern politicians were a monolithic block in general, or really on any issue. As we'll see when we talk about the development of the political factions that have been labeled parties by scholars of the time, though it's convenient to throw labels on a group, it's also quite difficult to say that all members of a certain group felt the same way about any issue. Even at this point, whether someone is pro- or anti-administration can change depending on the issue at hand. Okay, to get back on topic, Franklin's death was one of those moments of national loss as he had played such a key role in the creation of the United States and had been a champion of the states banding together as early as the Stamp Act Congress in 1765 when they were all still colonies. What would this loss mean for the future of the nation? Folks soon had another reason for asking this question. Washington's cousin, Lund Washington, had written the president at the end of April that his friends and neighbors in Virginia were of the opinion that he, quote, must remain at the head of the government so long as you live. May would bring concerns that such a time was not long away and that Adams may soon be head of the government. Around May 9th, Washington fell ill with a cold, which developed into pneumonia, and by May 15th, his doctors feared that his life was in danger, as he was running a high fever. Thankfully, the fever broke, and he was receiving visitors again by the 22nd. For those keeping track, this is the second health scare that Washington has experienced during his presidency, the first being the tumor on his leg that we discussed in episode 1.3. This will also not be the last. As Washington's health improved, word came that the nation was a little stronger, as Rhode Island finally decided to join the Union at the end of May. As all 13 former colonies were now a part of the Federal Union, it seemed about time to settle a long-standing issue. Namely, where should the nation's capital be located? During the Revolutionary War, the capital had moved, both by choice and with the British nipping at the Congress's heels, to Philadelphia, Princeton, Annapolis, Trenton, and had finally settled in New York City, which is where it was located upon Washington's inauguration. Washington, it seems, was either perfectly content to keep the capital in New York, or doubted that the issue would be resolved anytime soon, as he had entered into a one-year lease that began on May 1st for his new lodgings at the Macomb Mansion. However, it seems that many others in government had other ideas. Over 30 sites have been proposed since 1783, with the sites ranging from Virginia, up the East Coast, into the Hudson Valley, and with even distant Marietta in the Ohio country being suggested at one point. By and large, people in government agreed that it should be centrally located, but the question became whether the capital should be centrally located in terms of geography or the center of population, or whether the anticipated future growth of the United States should be taken into consideration. 
However, the main point of contention was that everyone wanted to benefit from either being in or in close proximity to the national capital. As it is now, so was it also in the 1790s that the name of the game was Location, Location, Location. Congress had been discussing the issue since it first convened, and it seemed that the debate was coalescing around two sites. One was a town in Pennsylvania overlooking the Susquehanna River that was 50 miles north of Baltimore and 70 miles west of Philadelphia, which had preemptively and optimistically been renamed Columbia. The other was a plain near the small river town of Georgetown, Maryland, close to the Potomac and Anacostia rivers. The geography made Southerners favor the Maryland site, while Northerners, and in particular Pennsylvanians, lobbied hard for Columbia. However, the deadlock continued on and on and on. Proposals were made, counter-proposals were made, temporary capitals to lead into permanent capitals with the locations moving here and there, up and down the East Coast, but to no avail. Finally, the House decided by a vote of 32 to 19 to place the national capital at, quote, some convenient place on the east bank of the Susquehanna River. It seemed that the momentum was going Pennsylvania's way. Then, a Pennsylvanian got involved. Robert Morris, previously mentioned on this podcast as the financier of the revolution, was at this point a senator from Pennsylvania. However, he did not like the thought of the capital being so far from civilization. Seventy miles from Philadelphia was a much longer way away in those days. Thus, not only did he throw his vote against the vague location on the Susquehanna River, but he put his money where his mouth was and offered up $100,000 from the state of Pennsylvania to pay for buildings for the federal government in the new national capital. The catch? The capital should be located at Germantown, Pennsylvania, just northwest of Philadelphia. The vote was tied in the Senate, and thus, the decision was left to John Adams. After hem-hawing for a bit, Adams voted against the Susquehanna proposal and for Germantown. And thus, Adams reopened the whole can of worms when it looked like the matter was finally going to be settled. No wonder Washington and the cabinet didn't want to consult with him too much. After this, Baltimore was back in play. Philadelphia was again in the mix. It was a shell game as to which place would be a temporary capital and which would be the permanent capital, but none of the options were sticking. The whole thing was becoming embarrassing and, some felt, potentially dangerous. Representative Benjamin Goodhue of Massachusetts wrote in April 1790, quote, that until we, i.e. the government, reside in a more central location, we shall never be able to decide upon any great national concern in which the northern and southern states may be divided simply upon its merits. Meanwhile, Representative Elbridge Gerry warned his colleagues in the debate over assumption against letting the issue drag on to the second Congress, asserting, quote, what will be the result? The government will be in danger of a convulsion. The revenue will probably be impaired or lost, and citizens attached to you will no longer be able to support your administration. Two major bills deadlocked, and it was increasingly clear that no more business was going to get done until something was done to move one or the other issue forward. Well, never fear. Here to save the day is, well, it certainly seems that someone or someones did, but who and how much influence any of them had is a matter for debate. Let me explain. If you came to this podcast with an interest in the history of the early republic, it's likely that you've already heard the tale of the dinner party. 
During the debate over the Assumption Bill, Jefferson invited Hamilton and Madison to dinner, and over dinner, the three came to an agreement that would settle the location of the Capitol on the Potomac after 10 years in Philadelphia, while Jefferson and Madison would use their influence to get the Assumption proposal through Congress. This has been told time and again, and the, the details and the impact of any agreement that might have taken place have been questioned. I think this story and the subsequent debate over it gets to a key point about politics of the time that many of the earlier historians, in addition to some modern students of history, have difficulty understanding. We think of political parties in terms of our Republican and Democratic parties. Organized affairs were, by and large, the party's legislative members vote in a block. We think of compromises between two factions as being conclusive and done deals as soon as the behind-the-scenes handshake is made. The first-party system just wasn't that neat and tidy. It would make things much easier for those researching history if it was, and indeed, there have been many attempts over time to simplify the story to that point. But it is the aim of this podcast, as I feel it should be the aim of any student of history, to try to understand the truth of the past no matter how complicated it is, rather than trying to make it fit into a neat and tidy box for our convenience. Okay, I'm getting off of my historian soapbox now and getting back to the dinner. Even those that question the impact of the dinner and any agreement reached that it had admit that some type of a dinner between these three men likely took place around this time and that they came to an agreement. However, the first question to be asked is whether whatever impact Jefferson, Madison, and Hamilton had on the proceedings in Congress was confined to one dinner or if it was due to a series of dinners. When a new series of papers were opened in 1976, an invitation was discovered dated June 6, 1790 to a dinner that evening issued by Thomas Jefferson to Tench Cox, who was the new Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, with the invitation being delivered by James Madison. Now, as Cox was a Philadelphia merchant who had taken up his office less than a month earlier, while Jefferson had only recently come to New York after years away in Europe, it does not seem likely that the two men had a strong acquaintance, if any, at the time. Thus, why was he being invited to dinner? Part of the problem in accepting the impact of the dinner comes in the fact that the only accounts we have of it are from Thomas Jefferson. To date, I have not found evidence of any direct mentions of it by either Hamilton or Madison. In Jefferson's account, he just happened upon Hamilton outside Washington's home looking, quote, somber, haggard, and dejected, even his dress uncouth and neglected. After talking for a bit outside Washington's, according to Jefferson, they decided to get together with Madison for dinner. However, perhaps the earlier invitation to Cox indicates that the compromise was less spontaneous and more planned. Speaking with Cox would have allowed the Virginians to get a sense as to whether Hamilton might be willing to compromise in order to get the assumption proposal through Congress, and to give Cox information he could take back to Hamilton in order to lay the groundwork. Another issue that's been pointed out with the supposed grand impact of the deal reached at Jefferson's was that many of the issues with the residence bill and the assumption scheme were already being worked out on their own. According to Senator Rufus King of New York, around that same time, a deal was reached, quote, between the congressional delegations of Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia to remove at the end of the session to Philadelphia, there to remain for 10 years and afterwards to remove to and permanently remain at the Potomac. Even James Madison was writing on the 22nd, after the dinner is believed to have taken place, that, were the Potomac to be chosen as the site of the permanent capital, it would be due to, quote, 
a coincidences of causes as fortuitous as it will be propitious now i'm going to return to this letter in a minute but i wanted to add in my two cents here the fact that these two major issues have been hanging over the heads of Congress for months, and in some cases years, and that these divisive points of contention were in fact resolved, is amazing enough. But, to me at least, it becomes even more powerful of a story if, rather than a deal made between three guys behind the scenes over dinner, it was in fact a combination of decisions made by numerous people, all with one goal of moving the business of the nation forward. That's a story of people from different backgrounds, with different interests and perspectives, ultimately deciding to compromise on not one, but two major issues. That's more of an example that we should try to emulate in our society, rather than the backroom deal. Okay, I digress again, I'm sorry, let's get back to it. Whatever happened in whatever dinner there was... We know that Thomas Jefferson was writing to James Monroe on June 20th about the two main issues facing Congress and the need for, quote, some plan of compromise. Though expressing his disagreement with the Assumption Plan, Jefferson asserts that, quote, In the present instance, I see the necessity of yielding for this time to the cries of the creditors in certain parts of the Union, for the sake of Union, and to save us from the greatest of all calamities, the total extinction of our credit in Europe. In the next sentence, he starts talking about the residency debate and brings up the proposal of, quote, an act fixing the temporary residence for 12 or 15 years at Philadelphia, and that at the end of that time, it shall stand, ipso facto, and without further declaration, transferred to Georgetown. He warns that this is the best deal in his mind, and that, quote, if this plan of compromise does not take place, I fear one infinitely worse an unqualified assumption, and the perpetual residence on the Delaware. Clearly, Jefferson was at least aware that something was in the works, and seems to be giving Monroe a heads up. Meanwhile, Madison, in his letter on the 22nd, was writing to the Chief Justice of the Virginia Supreme Court, Edmund Pendleton, about the same two issues before Congress. About assumption, he wrote, quote, the funding and revenue systems are reduced by the discord of opinions into a very critical state. Out of this extremity, however, some effective provision must, I think, still emerge. About the residency issue, quote, The business of the seat of government is become a labyrinth. We are endeavoring to keep the pretensions of the Potomac in view, and to give to all the circumstances that occur a turn favorable to it. In both letters... They acknowledged to their respective correspondents that it had been a while since they had written. Why did they choose now, of all times, to write to two prominent men in Virginia politics about the same issues with very similar hopeful outlooks on a compromise in the works to resolve both? In Jefferson's account, two Virginian congressmen, Richard Bland Lee and Alexander White, were key to passing the Assumption Plan. It could be that Madison worked on the two more directly, but they figured some support from folks back home wouldn't hurt either. The Virginia delegation was on the record as being pretty firmly against assumption, with only one of the ten Virginian representatives voting for it on April 12th. To push Lee and White, Jefferson and Madison may have felt that they needed all the force they could leverage. Meanwhile, Hamilton touched base with his old friend Robert Morris, who had been the fly in the ointment in the old Susquehanna proposal, in order to get his, and hopefully, the Pennsylvania Congressional Delegation's support. 
A dinner was arranged on June 28th with Hamilton, Jefferson, and Secretary of War Henry Knox meeting with the Pennsylvanians. Around the same time, according to Rufus King, Hamilton was working at the end of June on the Massachusetts delegation to convince them to abandon the proposal of New York as the temporary capital and to instead support the proposal of Philadelphia as the temporary capital and the Potomac site as the permanent capital. They certainly weren't the only actors in the play, but it does seem like the three men were trying to push towards a compromise of some sort, whether it was a grand compromise or two separate compromises. In any event, on June 28th, a vote was taken in the Senate on the Potomac River being the site of the permanent capital, and finally, a decisive vote was reached, of 16 in favor and only 9 opposed. The next day, the issue of the temporary capital was taken up. The New York proposal was voted down with 16 voting against and only 9 voting for. The Philadelphia proposal, though, ended up as a tie, 13 to 13. Thus, it went to John Adams again for the tiebreaker. I'd like to give John Adams the credit for solving this entire mess right then and there, but no, no, ever the contrarian, he voted against Philadelphia. Thank heavens, at this point, that Pierce Butler of South Carolina either had a change of heart or was just so fed up with the whole darn thing and changed his vote to support the Philadelphia proposal, thus eliminating the need for Adams' vote and approving it with a 14-12 vote. Likewise, the House was apparently so sick of the matter and ready to move on that there was little to no attempt to stop it, and the Senate's measure was approved. Thank heavens, the nation finally had a capital. But can we get on with this whole public credit scheme, as those debts aren't paying themselves? Hamilton worked through a compromise on a couple of issues about credits to states that had already paid off most or all of their debts, as well as establishing a date of July 1, 1791, for states with debts to report them in detail to the federal government in order for them to be assumed, and established a 6% payment on the principal amount of public debt, but with only 3% being paid on interest that was in arrears. With this, the Senate passed the Assumption Plan as well as the rest of the funding bill on July 16th, and the House, after a couple of final speeches, passed it on July 26th. Everyone may not have been happy. Certainly, Benjamin Rush was going off about the Assumption Bill, but there does seem overall to have been a sense of relief with everyone breathing a bit easier. Though he had not directly involved himself, likely due to concerns about not wanting to be seen as interfering in the work of Congress, Washington did express his concern that the debates were, quote, more in danger of having convulsed the government itself than any other points. This resolution did present a personal complication for Washington, though. Now that he was good and settled into his second house in New York, he would have to pack up his family and move them all to yet another house in Philadelphia before the second session of Congress began in December. If he hadn't before, I imagine at this point he was wishing that he had just stayed in Mount Vernon. It certainly would have been easier in his pocketbook. As Washington, or, to be more accurate, one of the enslaved people in the household, goes in search of the 18th century equivalent of packing tape and cardboard boxes, this seems as good of a place as any to leave it off this time. Next time, everything shifts west. The same government will be in a new location, and events out in the Northwest Territory will begin to draw people's attentions from finance and moving in an episode that I'd like to call Arthur St. Clair, Worst General Ever. Until then, 
Source information for this episode, as well as the audio for past episodes, in case you need to catch up, are available at the blog at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. The podcast is also available for download on iTunes and Stitcher. If you have any questions or just want to say hi, I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or via Twitter at presidencies89. As always, I cannot thank you enough for taking a little time out of your day to listen, and I hope that you will tune in again next time. Until then, take care, friends. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.